This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, a show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is businessman and author Armando Gadini. There are a lot of things I can say about Armando Gudini, but I'm going to let him tell you. He's lived a very interesting life, both professionally and personally. He started a wig company at one point. He's written four books. Fun fact, he's also my uncle. And I have my lovely wife, Jennifer, joining me today. She somehow clawed her way back into the podcast studio, despite all the booby traps I set. So, Jennifer, why don't you say hi? Hello. And I'm very excited to have the opportunity to do this. So here is our conversation with Armando Gadini. So, Uncle Armando, yes. thank you for joining the Story King podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure, Giancarlo and Jennifer. My pleasure. Well, as I always start my interviews, I usually ask my guests to just tell a little bit of their story, who they are, what they do. What can you tell the listeners as a short synopsis of your life? Luckiest guy in the world born in Florence, Italy, educated in the University of Mexico, migrated to the United States after graduating, got very lucky. I started a few businesses that I was able to sell, one to Gillette and one to Public. And here I am in Florida, uh, suffering the heat and uh, humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that, that's pretty short. I know both of your parents are artists. What was it like growing up with artist parents? Oh, it, it was very interesting. Not, not only from the point of view of, of the artistic environment uh, of being with them, but because of the people that they, that they were hanging out with. They painted, uh, I don't know how many presidents of countries, starting with, with Winston Churchill. My father, was the only painter that Winston Churchill ever sat for. Wow. Because he was a painter himself, you know that. No, I didn't know that. He was an excellent painter himself. So when um, a, uh, a Swiss Gazette uh, was going to uh, interview uh, Sir Winston, uh, on their cover, they never put photographs. They always put a, a portrait of the person of the year, so to speak, or whatever. But it had to be a, a portrait, something done by, by an artist. And that's why they had never had Winston Churchill, because he, he refused. Uh, a, he refused to spend the time posing for somebody. And B, I, I guess uh, he was such a good painter himself that he just didn't want to give the opportunity to others. But when they asked him that final time, he asked for, he said, okay, fine, I will sit if, uh, if I'm painted by Arrigo Guedini. And so my father was asked to go to Switzerland hmm. and paint his portrait, which eventually made the cover of that magazine with his story. Wow. 
Dad was uh, the son of, of a surgeon. Uh, my my grandfather was a um, a surgeon who had, um, in fact, a brief job as the Surgeon General of Italy when Italy was not a republic yet. This is obviously way before I was born. Mm -hmm. uh, Italy was still under King Emmanuel, and so uh, my my grandfather was uh, had a, a chair at the at the table of King Emmanuel in Rome hmm. because he was what you would call today the Surgeon General, which was called something else, obviously. He right. was just the surgeon of the royal family. Hmm. That's so, amazing. And, and so, uh, when my father, coming from a well-to-do family as he was, my, my, my grandfather wanted him to be a businessman because my grandfather owned a couple of hospitals and a clinic and things like that. And he wanted mm -hmm. my father to be a businessman so that he could administrate those things. My father instead felt uh, the call to art. And so, but he wanted to please his father, so he went to school obtained a diploma in business and then gave it to him and said bye and went to Paris <laughs> Paris and apprenticed uh, under uh, a then very very famous painter called Boldini mm. who was also Italian but he had made a reputation in France and uh, was based in, in Paris and uh, so through him he had known uh, Winston Churchill knew uh, my father's talents as a, as a portrait painter. I see. Where do you think that Winston Churchill portrait is now? Well, I, if you, I guess the, you know, the technology didn't exist then to, to keep things archived in modern ways, but there must be somewhere where all of the covers of that magazine, at least the covers, mm -hmm documented so and one of them should be with the face of Winston Churchill which was painted by then wow right I I remember no no your dad telling me that story that he got the degree and threw it to at his father you know kind of like here I did it <laughs> he, he did give it he went home and said dad this is what you wanted here it is take care I'll be in Paris if you need me <laughs> and moved to Paris for quite a few years. Wow. I still remember uh, when I was born, he still had the study, which was an apartment in Place de la Concorde, I remember. Now, I have a question because you are such a wonderful storyteller, not only stories, but jokes. Like you are such a great communicator. Do you think it's because of the, the wealth of experience you've had in life would you attribute that to your upbringing? Like, was there a lot of communication like that? Because you are just excellent with that. Well, Italians, uh, we we have a reputation for being talkers. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we, we communicate a great deal. It's one of the that is the reason why it's one of the most difficult languages in the world because uh, the vocabulary is almost double that of the United States. We, it's very, while in the United States, uh, occasionally when you're talking with someone, you might say, what do you mean? There's no such thing in Italian because uh, there is no way to misunderstand what the person is telling you. You know, it's not like English where one verb 
conjugate the different I, you. Uh, so it's very it, specific. It's it's very very specific. Each, mm. uh, verbs don't conjugate; they're just uh, passing, from, from, depending on who the, the subject is. We have it's completely different. Now, Uncle Armando, I know you've been an entrepreneur. You obviously have a creative side. You write books. Are those two sides mutually exclusive, the business and artistic? In other words, do you have like an entrepreneurial hat and a separate creative hat? I would love to be able to say yes to you, but unfortunately, I have to be honest, uh, no, I don't think I have a great entrepreneurial head. I've been just very fortunate. When, when uh, your grandma passed away, my mother passed away, I found out that she had a trunk full of articles about me, which I didn't, I, didn't, I never kept one. And um, some of them amazed, amazed me because I had forgotten, you know, those, those things. But I sold my first company to Gillette when I was only in my 20s. Wow. Which in those days was very rare because today there are billionaires that are 20 years old, you know, because of computers. Uh, the internet and blah blah blah. So uh, Silicon Valley, uh, there are people. When I sold my house, is right on top of Silicon Valley in a place called Hillsboro. I I was. It proves what I just said that I, I don't think I'm a very good businessman because uh, I sold it and two years later, the the person lost it. And uh, the banks sold it for four times what I had sold it. Wow. The banks sold, sold my house for nearly $10 million, nine million. <laughs> so, and it's now is probably worth twice that, but it shows you that I'm really not, <laughs> not a great businessman. I was just very fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time. And I'm a little bit difficult to run circles around that I admit, but I, I, I see the opportunities and I take them. So after I sold North American fashions to Gillette, like I said, when I was in my 20s, Gillette only wanted to, just to show you how it has nothing to do with my intellect, it's just luck. They only were interested in the business in the United States because they were known, at that time, they were one of the largest corporations in the United States because the, the big tech giants didn't exist then. And few people knew that they were not just a, you know, a men's right. shaving company. Beaks, you know, the pen company, they, own, they owned a tremendous amount of companies. When they bought my company because they, they wanted to expand to the, to the women business, they wouldn't buy my factories overseas. They were not interested in the factories, they just wanted the business in the United States. So I was stuck with the factories, and I had 3,800 employees in, in, in Asia and more than 1,200 sewing machines. And I didn't know what to do with them, so uh, we decided to start making shoes, and that's when these two friends of mine and I uh, founded uh, LA Gear. They were the owners of the LA Gear USA. I was the manufacturer for LA Gear. So as you can see, it's just 
luck. Most of it was luck. I, I cannot get, take credit for it. So you were, you're an entrepreneur, you're a father, you're a creative. What do you consider your greatest accomplishment in life? My daughters, <laughs> so without doubt. I'm, I'm happiest for them. Uh, the other uh, things that uh, I could, I might have, I could have lost, I could have, uh, you know, that is, that doesn't have a downside, you know, to have daughters like I have. And, and now my grandchildren, that I, I, I think they will always be my, the one thing that, I, that I'm most happy with, proud. By the way, Camila has a blog herself, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've read it. You She's know? an excellent writer as well. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your latest book. I know uh, you don't have to give too much away, but what's the basic premise of uh, the last book you've written? I don't trust myself with pure fiction. I haven't tried it, but I, I don't trust myself uh, with being an, an, an imaginative uh, type of... So most of, most of what I've written, which has is, is been four books so far, are factual things. Uh, things, uh, things that I have either witnessed or at least uh, known about and that have passed very close to me the sense that uh, you know they were never more than one person away from from me uh, as an example I am sure that or, or maybe, maybe you didn't but you can imagine where the inspiration for for Nanina is mm -hmm. right it was the murder of my sister who was murdered by a serial uh, serial killer who murdered somebody else after her and it's you know, he's, he's getting three square meals and, uh, you know, much better health, you know, health coverage than, than any of us have, you know. And, and so that, that, that sort of triggered in my mind the fact that somebody may want to have, uh, I'm too old for it, but somebody may have sparked the idea that, uh, you know, he, he really should not be you know, living and enjoying himself and all of that while, while he made uh, seven families miserable, you know. Right, and, and so basically you're writing biographical fiction, so you're, you're taking true events and then you're using them to, to sort of write a, a novel because you, there are some fictional elements to it, right? Yes, of course. The, the names are different and whatever, but uh, it isn't that obviously... Uh, my father could never, ever ad admit or even be at peace with the fact that that the killer was, uh, you know, was living as well as he was. It occurred to me that if somebody wanted to uh, to rectify that, that's probably how they would go about it. It's interesting because uh, John just had an interview with a woman who was saying almost the same thing about being able to kind of uh, tell stories about people that in order to like kind of rectify the story, you know, writing helps you kind of be able to create a situation that if you're wronged by someone or if you don't like someone, how you can kill them off in the story. And it, it's, she said, it's kind of this very therapeutic outlet. Uh, and at the same time, you, you relive it uh, 
too much, and that's not very pleasant. But uh, it's the price you pay for wanting to be, uh, you know, for wanting to be reasonably accurate. The most complicated book that I wrote, which was The Red Bands, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. They are things that happened uh, at my side and along with people that I, that I shared a life with and whatever. When you read it, you will obviously, you know, I am not the main character in it. But at the beginning, I described the main character by using my experiences because I didn't know him well enough or deeply enough to know the nuances of, of his character and things like that. So when, I, when, when the book begins in the first 60, 70, 80 pages uh, of it, it was, I was describing my experiences when I had North American fashions, uh, when I was traveling to Asia and that I, I met these characters that, uh, that were also in the wig business. They were much smaller than I was. They were actually almost customers of mine that I supplied wigs to and they, they distributed them to, to the different, including the two that ended up being my partners in LA Gear. They, they started off as customers of mine because they were from Boston and they had a beauty shop and I, they didn't have the, uh, the means to, to start buying wigs. So I gave them credit and I put them in business. So they were very grateful. And when I sold it to Gillette and they wanted to start something else and we started the shoe business, here, they, uh, they allowed me to be the partner without having to be here because I was living in Asia at that time. By that time, I had married Patty, and so I was spending most of my time in Asia, so I, I couldn't be a very effective partner here in the United States. So I was the Asian partner. And they, the two of them, uh, Paul Hyman, they were the, the, the main operators. But like I said, uh, to, to get back, I, I've gone a long way around coming back to, to your question. Yes, you get involved in it, and it, it does affect you a little bit. But therapeutically, I guess, uh, it helps you get used to live with it, you know? And the reason that the, that the book was called The Red Bands is because it's how I met this person. I met him in Hong Kong, and he, it was the first time that he had come to Hong Kong. He was my age, and, uh, you know, so we hit it off right away and whatever. And when he arrived in Hong Kong, it was pretty lawless Hong Kong in those days, and and so he was looking for a, a car to rent, and uh, somebody rented him what turned out to be a taxi. It, it was really a taxi in Hong Kong, where where uh, diesel Mercedes Benz that were painted red. And so, because that triggered the whole story, that's why I called it. The red band. <laughs> but that's how I met this guy. But but of course, like I told you, the first one third of the book is it's just it's just entertaining background. But the real story starts around page eighty, seventy something, because it's a three hundred and fifty page book, I guess. And uh, but it's everything in it is is factual, except that he. The main character of the book 
I described him as myself at the beginning because I didn't know him well enough, and I wanted, like I like I said at the beginning, I don't like to write uh, fiction, so I I like to flesh my characters. I I like to give them, uh, you know, feet, and legs, and heads, etc. And so I didn't know where, else, and I so I described him as myself. In that. But then there comes a point when you realize that it is not myself because uh, he went and did his own things. He got too close to this guy, and becomes, and that's the the main story. As it there isn't any fiction whatsoever in it. Uh, in other words, uh, all the places that I mentioned in it were visited by me also but, uh, when I was preparing for the book because I wanted to make sure that I was describing the right things and. Uh, so, uh, but no fiction. Now, I understand that uh, there's some talk about turning Nanina and the Red Bands into a movie or a series. How did that meeting go? Red Bands is long enough to be a series. And so I, I think that the people that are interested may go in that direction. Nanina uh, is, is instead a, a film because it's short enough, can be made into a, into a film. How do you decipher which life experiences to write about, since you have so many? Every one of them is, uh, is triggered by something. Obviously, the death of my sister was, was a major one that I always wanted to do, but I, I waited until I could have a, a cool head as opposed to being too emotional about it because, uh, you know, I didn't, want it. I didn't want to put my emotions because I was involved in that one. So um, I waited until I was far enough that I, I can deal with it with a cool mind. The same thing with, uh, with this one. It was triggered by the fact that uh, your dad called me some years ago when, while I was living on my boat, you know, running all over the world in my boat, uh, to tell me that this friend of ours had, had just been let out of jail or something like that. And uh, so I thought, okay, now it's time that I, I can put all that on paper, you know. And I, I, I wrote that book on my book. Hmm. It's, it's um, every, every book has uh, a beginning, uh, not necessarily for the, in, the same, in the same context. Uh, sometimes, uh, like for example, Nanina, happened way before this and and never the, but I had to wait much longer to write it because I wanted to be a little bit dispassionate you know I didn't want to be so with my head still so involved so while this one I wrote that one much quicker than I wrote Nanina Nanina is half the length of this because that I was I didn't have anything vested in it you know, it was just, I was telling the story of people I knew, and, uh, and even though I described the main character as myself, as I re I'm repeating myself now to you, it, it, it had nothing to do with me. Uh, it's obvious, you will see it, that it's obvious when it gets to about the middle of the book. Then you will say, wait a minute, Armando never did that. But like I said, I don't trust that much my my creativity in fiction. I uh, I wanted to flesh the character, so I gave him my my body, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Have you always written, 
Or is that something of a new venture? No, I started when I when I when I sold all my businesses and I bought the boat and went uh, all over the world in the boat. I bought the boat in uh, uh, in the Med uh, in France, and uh, and then I uh, I've been all over all over the place. So you really started riding on the boat, sailing on the boat, riding on the boat. Yes, I had lots of time, and uh, obviously I wasn't sailing all the time. So I spent a lot of time on. Uh, I would stay in the marinas of boat of uh, of hotels, for example. You know just check in as if I were a hotel guest and I would stay in the boat a few months here, a few months there. I, I was in practically every single island of the Caribbean. And so I started, I, I started to put down life experiences and then I thought, well, wait a minute, that's boring. You know, a lot of people have had even better successes than me. So let me write about somebody a little bit more dramatic. <laughs> And I, I, I picked on other dramatic stories that I came sometimes uncomfortably close. Now, does anybody you've written about know you've written about them? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. The guy that just got out of jail that, that your dad knew, I'm sure that if he reads my book, he will find himself in <laughs> But I don't name him by name, of course. I just, but no, the the others, no. Um, another book that I wrote, uh, which is the one that that most approaches sort of fantasy and uh, uh, fiction, is the uh, is the Moctezuma book. But that one would be nearly impossible to make a movie of it. So I. It's the one that I, I push least. Now, do you have any favorite authors or books? I can't say that I have read that that much because I am mostly interested in reading about learning. In other words, not, not, not reading stories about somebody else, but learning, you know, learning why this is, why that exists, why did, uh, did the Egyptians build the pyramids, that I'm interested in reading, you know. Uh, it's, I'm not interested in, in, in the kind of literature that makes the, uh, the list of uh, favorite books. Uh, they, they haven't attracted me, any, let me put it that way. Although I have a house full of books. Uh, I read them and then I get to the middle and I say, if you're interested, I, I can send you a whole library. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I, I back, I, you know, I buy them, but then I, they're new. I, I would love to, but Jen would be mad at me because I have a library myself. And uh, so you have to sneak send them to me. <laughs> you don't mind that I'm sending him this one, right? No, not at all. Not at all. No. <laughs> Do you think that everybody has the ability to reflect and to write the way you did? To kind of look back at their life experiences and say and pick interesting or other people's stories that they may have run into and, and be able to create in the form of writing a book or? Well, uh, the, the measuring stick that I use for uh, finding a subject and developing it is whether I would like it or not. And, you know, in other words, if it's, if it's the kind of book I would like to read. Uh, as opposed to, I, I've never written 
to please or to sell books or to, you know, in other words, I didn't approach writing as a profession, so to speak, as, as I wasn't trying to be a Hemingway or anything like that, even though I probably had more experiences than he had. I, I just saw the, the whole life of Hemingway, they had a series. He, he was an undoubtedly a fantastic writer. But he could not compare his experiences with mine. I mean, I've, I've lived in eight different countries. And I've had experiences that they never had. Partially because they were other times, you know, mm -hmm. mobile as they are today. But I, I, having lived in the Philippines, in, in Indonesia, in, in Korea, in Japan, in China, <laughs> everywhere, it's just, it, it, it's quite different. And they, having lived in the United States and having visited those places, you know what I mean? It's, it's very different. So I, I thought of myself as qualified that I could be able to write about them because, because I got to know them more intimately than they are obviously much more talented writers that they can take a small thing and make you, you know, take a few petals and make a, a flower arrangement, you know. Yeah, I can't. If I tell the facts and then uh, hopefully people will be interested in reading that. But I don't know if this answers your question, but no, I, I, it's not like I was attempting to be a writer or anything like that. No, I, I wrote them uh, for, for my satisfaction and to make sure that those tales and facts and lives were not just forgotten completely, you know. That, that's the only reason that I... Because when I'm gone, uh, you know, those, those things will never be known, maybe, because they will die with the people that, that live them, you know. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take the time to let you know about my latest book. It's called Massimo's Mirror and Other Stories. It's my first collection of short stories. The book uses fantasy, science fiction, and fairy tales to create a world where a magical array of protagonists conquer their fears, battle forces of evil, and step up to meet their potential. Suitable for the secular and religious alike, these stories are full of symbolism and quirky characters, including aliens, robots, angels, demons, superheroes, gods, animals, giants, monsters, and dragons, and just the right length to hold the attention of children and adults alike, all 50 stories are crafted to entertain and make us see behind the veil of reality and perhaps teach something along the way. The ebook and paperback editions are available on Amazon. You can purchase an autographed copy on my website, storykingbooks.com. Also, if you sign up on Story King Books with your email, you'll get a free copy of my latest PDF resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. And now back to today's episode. I interviewed a police officer who wrote a memoir for the very same reason. He tried to do research on his family and realized he could really find nothing on them they were poor and there's no record and so he wanted to write a memoir of his life just to leave something behind i i have lately uh been thinking very seriously uh of writing a book about nonno you know uh, hmm. because he had an exceptional life uh, i think you would count in the fingers of, of your hands uh, how many people could say what he had. i mean he has painted 
presidents of uh, a dozen countries, has painted princes and has painted prime ministers, has, has painted, uh, he painted half of Hollywood, uh, you know, not the Hollywood that you would know, but the Hollywood that your parents would have. So, uh, he, his was a very, very interesting life. He had a unique character and uh, maybe uh, he was able to, to have all those experience, experiences because he was like that. I seriously doubt it, but uh, for example, when we, when he uh, decided that, uh, you know, I had already, I had finished my school in Mexico and I, it occurred to him that that's it, Mexico was not a great country for us to live in, uh, you know, it was good enough that, I don't know if you know this, but the one that talked, that the one that is responsible for me going to the University of Mexico City was an actor by the name of Tyrone Power. Yeah, that was, uh, that my father had befriended uh, right after the Second World War, because he was married to a woman by the name of Linda Christian, who, in spite of her name, she was Mexican. She, uh, Linda Christian was a name that had been Hollywoodized, but she was Mexican and was very friendly with the president of Mexico, Miguel Aleman at that time, and so on and so forth. And when, when Teron Power found out, you know, he used to hit me in the back of my head at, sitting at the, at the table, and he would just hit me and say, so what do you want to be, you know, when you grow up? <laughs> and I, one time I said, I, my, I didn't even answer, but my, my father did. He said, I think he, would, he should be an architect because, you know, and visualize things. And so he, he said, hey, you know, the best school of architecture in the world today is the uh, University of Mexico City. And he was right, because at that time, all of the modernization of buildings that you're witnessing today originated from the University of Mexico City School of Architecture. All the buildings that are glass and metal, that all originated in Mexico. All the greatest architects went to Mexico at that time to teach there and because that, you know, and so that, that, that's the time that they decided to send me there. So, and Linda Christian being Mexican and being friendly with, with all the powers that be in Mexico, she arranged for us to go to Mexico and arranged for, for dad, your nonno, to paint not one, but two presidents of Mexico. Miguel Alemán and uh, Ruiz Cortines. So they took very good care of me. When we left Mexico, and I told you this whole long story to get to the point that I was trying to make about dad's character. Which unfortunately, most of it, your dad inherited. <laughs> and that is, he was given, when, when we were leaving Mexico, and we were coming to the United States, my father was already commissioned to paint some some very influential people in Chicago. And we left in two cars. The president of Mexico didn't want my father to leave. So he kept saying, don't leave, Rigo, don't leave, you know, you, you'd be happy here. Aren't you happy? Yeah, he said, I'm happy, but you know, I want a, a future for my sons and this and that. And that. So reluctantly, the president of Mexico gave him a gift, which I still have, uh, a, a a watch that I, I have no idea what it's worth today, but it must be 
of the stratosphere because it's the only watch of its kind. It's called the Volcane Cricket. And it's a watch that is this thick because underneath has, a, has an alarm. It was the first alarm clock. Today you have those that you just push a button and things like that. That one has an actual alarm underneath it. And, it, and it's of course uh, gold and, and all that. And the president of Mexico bought it and gave it to Nono when he was leaving, along with four letters of introduction. One was to a then little known senator from Texas called Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, one was to uh, Senator Javits, who, who then became legend, of course, in New York. And the other two were for the Kennedy family. He got their apartments on, on, uh, on East uh, Central Park, etc., etc. But anyway, he never, ever contacted them. We went through Texas. We drove around uh, Lyndon Johnson's ranch. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he wouldn't stop to going and give them. And Lyndon Johnson was like this, so close to the president of Mexico, that you know he wrote on the letter, "Look, this is my very good friend, Arrigo Guedini. He's one of the most talented. Blah blah blah. This and that. Please make sure that you know you help them. You help them." get a great life in your country and I am so sorry to lose them, blah, 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 and this and that. My mother, <laughs> your, your grandma, begged Dad, aren't you going to stop? We drove through Texas because we entered the United States at El Paso. We drove through Texas. Man, Dad, you know, your, your nonna said, no, no, we'll come back another time. We can come back. I mean, it's, it's, it's 3,000 miles that we're going to. What do you mean we'll come back? We're passing right next to his ranch. He wouldn't stop. He was in a hurry to get to Chicago where he had uh, already, you know, these people waiting for him to paint the portraits, their portraits. And uh, he just wouldn't. She had to beg him to get in touch with uh, Senator Javits when, when they got to New York. She actually went and grabbed the phone. She said, otherwise I'm going to dial the number. And my father said, okay, okay, I'll talk to him. Because otherwise he, he wouldn't have. That, that's the kind of person he was. He would run out of money constantly in spite of having made millions because he painted. He, he wasn't cheap. My father, in those days, he used to charge $15,000 for a portrait. Wow. So, you know, it's not little. In those days, it's like 50000 today, right? But then he wouldn't paint. And then we would always stay at hotels. Like when we arrived, we stayed at the Commonwealth Hotel in Chicago. Uh, we had two or three rooms, I forget. And we lived there for two years. <laughs> you know, it's just that he, would, he wouldn't get an apartment. And, uh, he didn't care. Whenever mom said, Arrigo, we're running out of money, you know, we're down to our last thousand dollars, my father would say, oh, okay, okay, pick up the phone. Hello, Mr. Sanso, yeah, I'm here in Chicago, yeah, I'm, I, I, I have time now to paint your portrait. And they would say, okay, okay, then come. And then he would go paint the portrait and then get home and say to my mother, okay, here's money. <laughs> Here's money, why don't you go to Italy and see your family and this and that and pay for the hotel and 
that was dad. Wow. And uh, he was he was just not he was not a very ambitious man. Not at all. Zero ambition. No, he he was uh, and I, I guess that's that's what was displaced by his talent. You know, talent occupied the majority of his brain and uh, he, he just didn't have any ambition. If he had, he would have been, while other other great painters, uh, also very good businessmen, you know, like Salvador Dali, for example. Just, my father said, he knew him well, but he never thought of him as a great, but he was a great promoter, knew how to promote himself. Same thing with Picasso. Yeah. They knew how to promote themselves. My father was never interested in promoting himself. He painted all the presidents of South America, Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil, everybody. Never took advantage of it uh, or, you know, to, to get something, you know. Never. He just painted them, and got paid and forgot them. <laughs> the only one that remained uh, friendly until his death was Tyrone Power. That's because, uh, you know, Tyrone Power used to pay so many compliments to mom, you know, your grandma, uh, love, love her cooking. So much that he ended up eventually uh, divorced uh, Linda Christian and married an Italian. <laughs> but anyway, so I digressed a lot. I hope I didn't bore you with all that long story, but. No, that was fantastic. As a matter of fact, I'm curious as to how your your dad's contentedness, like how his lifestyle, even just being um, not living the conventional life, how that affected you as an adult. Like, you know, did you find yourself like really planning to do something different from the way you were brought up or were you inspired by their courage to kind of be all over the place and not just be put in a box of what society would think is acceptable? How did that influence you? That's a super intelligent question. You know that, and I, 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 I've asked, I have answered it myself, uh, to myself. And that is that I, being a witness to, to my father's, the way he lived and the way he ignored opportunities, and he just lived by his talents only. You know, he wasn't interested in building up, uh, you know, a reputation, name, money, no. Just, uh, you know, feeding his family well, giving them a good education, making sure that they blah, blah, blah. I sort of rebelled against that. That's why I became so ambitious, because because I, I lived through hearing my mother constantly saying to him, but Arrigo, you know, money is not just what we need for the next month. Uh, it should be security, it should be... My father didn't understand that. He, he just... And so, I, I guess as a rebellion, not as a rebellion, but as uh, unconsciously, huh? not, not that I consciously thought, oh no, I'm going to be exactly the opposite of my dad. No, no. no. But subconsciously, I... Uh, uh, you know, I how I made my first money, well, it was in all the newspapers, because I, I, some guy commissioned me to, to redo, he had just bought a, a huge property in New Jersey, a very rich guy, 
he used to make all the labels for soft drinks, Coca-Cola. This is before the advent. Now they print it directly on the glass. But in those days, they used to put a label, you know, it was a, a paper label. He made all the labels for Pepsi, Coke, uh, all, all of the drinks. So you can imagine this guy was a multimillionaire and he lived in New Jersey. His name was Raymond Balazny. It's in all the newspapers. If you want to, I can send you some of the newspapers that my mother kept. Um, and um, this Raymond Balazny commissioned me to do his home, to redo his home. He heard from some architect uh, that had just worked with uh, Liz Taylor, and I had helped him redo her apartment in New York and things like that. So he heard uh, that I was good and this and that. And so, and he was a friend of the Kennedys, and was a friend of uh, Senator Javits. So uh, when my father, and my father painted the portrait of his family as well. But when he wanted to redo this villa, this huge property that he had bought in Northern New Jersey, somebody said to him, I think it was Senator Javits must have said to him, hey, you know, Arrigo's, Arrigo's son is an architect, uh, you know, so he hired me, and I redid his house. When I finished, I wanted to go back to Italy. I didn't like the United States that much. I, I was a little bit disenchanted with the United States. I was, I was more, uh, I liked life in Florence much better. You know, I remembered it. My memory was playing tricks on me. In other words, I remembered it better than it really was in the reality. I wanted to go back to Italy. I told that to my dad, and so on. And so I called this Raymond Balazny. I had already finished his job, but he still owed me $12,000. That's in all the newspapers, by the way, so I'm not telling you anything, anything new. And when I called him and I said, uh, Mr. Balazny, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm planning to go back to Italy, and could you see your way clear to, you know, finish paying me? I didn't say it that well because my English was still a little broken up, but I put my point across. Yeah, 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 kid, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it, don't worry about it, bro. Hunger. Two days later, I got a call from, from his attorney. And I remember distinctly, it was a Friday, and he, he said to me, hi, uh, Armando Guidini? I said, yes. He says, this is so-and-so, I don't remember his name. He says, I'm Mr. Balazny's attorney. And I'm calling to, to, to tell you that we are on our way to uh, South Manhattan because Mr. Balazny is filing for bankruptcy. <laughs> I'm listening to this, and that's how stupid I was. I mean, I was, I was 23, I think I was. Or I don't remember. But, but uh, I was not, not very... I couldn't understand what that phone call was all about. And I said, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> you know, I said to the attorney, not, not as clearly as I'm saying it to you, but with my broken English, I said, why is that something I should know? I, I don't know how I'm involved in that. He says, well, Kev, you should know that technically Mr. Balazny doesn't owe you anything anymore you know, in bankruptcy. You know, I didn't understand what was happening because I'm saying, I, you know, I'm here from Italy where it's hard to make a living and here the streets are supposed to be <laughs> paved with gold and this guy doesn't even pay me for my job. <laughs> what the hell is going on, you know? <laughs> so I was, you know, I, I kept saying to my dad, I want to go back to Italy. Well, I was dating mo a model 
and uh, she came she came to the hotel where I was staying on Central Park South. And oh, no, I jumped ahead. This was Friday. Saturday, on Saturday morning, there's a knock at my door at the hotel where I was staying. I was staying in a hotel because I didn't want to get an apartment. I didn't want to stay in the United States. And knock at my door, and uh, there is Balazny with his, with his chauffeur, and they're carrying a trunk. They're carrying a huge trunk. Those trunks that, that you use for traveling, you know, in, in ships in the olden days. And they're dragging this, this hi kid, he's just, you know, hey, Mr. Balazny, well, you know, what's going on? He says, I came to pay you. I looked at the trunk, I said, oh my God, he brought it in quarters or something. You know? <laughs> what the hell? So they dragged this, this big trunk in and drops it in and he said, we're even, buddy. Bye. And, and he walked out with his driver. I'm sitting there in shock. I, I'm still in my underwear because it's like nine o'clock in the morning. I'm saying to myself, I, I, I don't know if I should open this trunk. <laughs> I was afraid. And just at that time, the girl that I was dating, who who was a model, she was the uh, she was the cover girl for Cheesebro Ponds, you know, the cold cream company. And uh, I was dating her at the time, and so she comes in and she sees the trunk and she says, "Are you sneaking away from me going back to Italy without telling me?" Yeah, I said, "No, no, 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 no." Uh, you know, I, he, she says, "What? Well, what's in the trunk then?" I, I said, "No, no, it's not. No, look, my clothes is in the closet. I was trying to explain that." But she didn't believe me, so she went to the trunk and opened it. She looks inside; it was hair. It was human hair. It was, oh but they were all turned inside out, you know, so that the hair was. So she looks at this and she says, "Hey, these are wigs." And I said, "You know what they are?" <laughs> I was amazed because I didn't know what it was. I, I thought it was a trunk full of hair. You know, how the hell would I know about wigs? <laughs> I had a full head of hair. I was dating girls that had full heads of hair. I didn't know anything about wigs. And it was brand new in the United States. It, it wasn't, you know, it was just starting. So she says, hey, these are wigs. I said, oh, you know what they are? She says, yeah, my beautician sells them. I said, oh my God, great. <laughs> I said, listen, get him on the phone. I gave him the phone. I said, call him. If he sells them, he must buy them, right? So <laughs> she says, yeah, okay. So she got on the phone with this guy. And I hear her say, oh, I see this guy has a trunk full of wigs and this and that. And uh, after a minute, she says, I don't know, I, wait, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put him on. And she gives me the phone. I haven't the slightest idea of what the hell he's talking about, right? And he's saying, um, do you have uh, number two? Do you have number seven? Do you have one um, B over 22? And the, I said to myself, what the hell is he talking about? But uh, I said, uh, what is that, sir? He says, you know the colors. And I'm looking at the trunk and there's all colors. You know, there's every color of hair that, that exists. And so I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I have those colors too. I'm assuming that they have to be there, right? So he says, okay, uh, I'll take two 1Bs and I'll take two 1822s and I'll take one this and that. 
gave me four, five. Next day, I got the address from the girl, and next day I went to a gas station, I still remember, on 10th Avenue in New York, and I asked somebody, I said, can you give me a car, can you rent me a car with a driver? And I said, yeah, my car is, my son will take you, I'll charge you so much. I said, great. So his son came with me, we went to the hotel, we picked up the trunk, and we drove all the way to to uh, Flushing on the island, where the beauty shop had this girl. So we, we get to this beauty shop and uh, it was a, a Monday, so he was closed. But he was at the, at the very back working on one person that he must have had to work on because she was a model like my girlfriend and whatever. And so I still remember it was called Fred's Shears and Cheers. <laughs> it was the name of the beauty shop in Flushing, New York. So I dragged this uh, trunk into the beauty shop and he says, can I help you? I said, yeah, I came to deliver your wigs. <laughs> Mind you, all he wanted to buy was four or five of them. He looks at the thing and he said, he said something. At that time, I didn't think it was funny. When I thought about it later, it was hilarious. When I said, I'm here to deliver your wigs, he looks at this whole big thing. He says, Christ, you must have some route. Because <laughs> there must have been 500 wigs in there. Because you know? like, they were all flat like this one. You know? So when I said, I'm here to deliver four or five to him, he says, Christ, you must have some, some route. Some route. I, said, I didn't understand what he meant. And I said, No, no, it's just that. I don't know exactly what you want, and so you you pick it, you know. Huh. Says, how much you want for them? Uh, how much you want per week? I remember Balazny having said to me that he would he was calculating them at thirty five dollars to me because that's what they cost in Hong Kong. But me, stupid, didn't know that here in the United States they were selling them for one twenty, one thirty to the beauty shops, who then would get 250 from the customer because they were human hair, you know. So, and I'm saying, oh, he gave them to me for $35. I'm never going to be able to sell them all, so let me see if I can get a little more. <laughs> so, so and he said, how much do you want for them? I said, uh, $60. He looked at me, $60? He was shocked because he, he was paying 110 120 so, me, stupid, you know, I, I, I misread that and I said, make it 50? <laughs> I, thought, I thought I had quoted him too much, you know. So I said, 50, okay. So he says to me, hmm, are they hot? I said, I don't know, I don't wear them. <laughs> I, my English. Oh, you know, I was completely out of my, <laughs> out of my medium, you know. I said, I don't know how to wear them. <laughs> he, he smiled and he said, okay. So he had ordered four or five and he ended up taking about 10, 12. When I, he says, hey, listen, kid, this is all the cash I have now, but if you hold these until Saturday, I can buy more. Right then and there, you know, because I, I may be 
you know, a novice at that time, but dumb I wasn't, right? So I knew I had made a mistake and I went the wrong way <laughs> with the price that it was too cheap. So, but I couldn't take it back all of a sudden and say, no, give me a hundred or whatever. So um, I said, no, look, I'm going back to Italy and uh, I have to get rid of them. Do you have any friends, you know, in the beauty, beauty shops that would buy them? Anyway, let me cut the, the, the story a little short. I, I, in two days, I sold them all, and now I was selling them for ninety or eighty. The eleven, twelve thousand dollars that this guy owed me. All of a sudden, I'm sitting in my hotel room, and there were no credit cards in those days, so it was cash. I had a, I, I counted thirty some thousand dollars. Wow! Instead of the twelve that he owed me. So I'm saying to myself, what the hell? <laughs> what is, that? you know, three, three days ago I was going to leave the country with the tail between my legs because, uh, you know, I couldn't even collect on what this guy owed me. And now I have three times what he owed me. You know, what? You know, so I said, well, wait a minute. So I called, I called uh, Balasmi. What do you want, kid? You know, we're even. I said, no, 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 Mr. Balazny. I just wanted to know if you still have some more of those wigs. He says, what? <laughs> he says, yeah. Uh, I, so I showed up. I gave him a, uh, an appointment and I showed up and uh, with a whole pile of cash. He says, oh, kid, I can't. I'm in bankruptcy. I can't be seen with all that cash. What are you doing? You know, in a public place. I said, oh, I'm sorry, but Mr. Balazin, you have more of those wigs? Yeah, he says, I'm not going to give them to you for 35, though. I said, no, no, you know, how much do you want? And I started bargaining with him. He gave them to me for 60, 65, whatever it was. And that's how he started the wig business in the United States. It was uh. papers, you know, that it started that way. So I made a huge long story with you because uh, I noticed that you didn't know it. But John... It, he he has the newspaper clippings that my mother kept. Yeah, I remember, you know, I've always known you were in the wig business, but I, I never had any idea how you got into the wig business or how anyone gets into the wig business. Well, I, I hope I, I don't drift into, into braggadocious, but I was the wig business in this country. I was the largest. I was supplying everybody else wow. because I had an advantage over everybody else. Uh, an unfair advantage, and that is that in those days China was isolated. No, no, no American could travel to China. You know, it was it was a locked country. You can look it up. And I had the advantage of being able to go to China with, with my Italian passport. Mm. So I, I I had the wigs made in China where they were much cheaper than anywhere else, and no other American could go there to make them. Because, uh, you know, they, China was off limits to Americans. Yeah. So, this is just to show you that it isn't necessarily talent, you know. It's just that I was in the right place at the right time and uh, I knew how to exploit the unusual circumstances and uh, how it happened. Um, and I ended up with the largest business in the United States and uh, I sold it to Gillette. Wow. That's also in the newspapers also. Yeah, I remember reading that, and it actually leads us to, to our last question. It's a, it has to do with seizing opportunities. So, you know, we read a book from one of our friends, you know, it's about 
you know, having the courage to follow dreams, cease opportunities, career changes, moving to another country, whatever those things are. And so many people struggle to make, you know, big changes. What would you suggest to people to, uh, you know, seize opportunities when they come, even if they seem different, even if they seem big and scary? I owe that, uh, I go back to what I said earlier, I owe that to wanting to act as opposite as possible to dad who lived by purely by his talent i obviously didn't have a talent like he did so i i had to uh, and i wanted to my mother was a little bit more aggressive m much more down to earth you know she was she was more uh, you know she was from a poor family uh, in florence and uh, uh, things didn't come easy to her so she was more a little bit more aggressive when it came to opportunity she couldn't because in those days a woman was not was not a businesswoman you know that's a thing of of, of, of the next generation but before that uh, women were at home with the kids you know most of them uh, so but she was much more ambitious than dad and uh, i suffered watching my mother suffer dad's lack of uh, ambition that that's all we attributed to the, the fact that he was just not ambitious he, he didn't he didn't want to build anything he was satisfied with just painting doing paintings and uh, that was all he wanted to do and uh, if he got paid for that he was very satisfied and i didn't have her t his talents, so I, I had to take the opposite route and listen to my mother and grab the opportunities as they came and take advantage of them and not, not let them slip away. You know, and that was it. no, no, no talent. I, I don't take I don't take uh, credit for any of those whatever successes I had. It wasn't for talent. It was for wanting to take advantage of the situation as, uh, as it occurred at the time that it occurred. But I, I can't complain. I had a good life, you know, interesting. Uh, unfortunately, my partner, and I would still be doing it, unfortunately, my partner died on me. Son of a gun. <laughs> no. So, yeah. Oh, and then uh, the, the one thing that John knows, but you, you probably don't. I lost everything. I say everything, I don't mean most of it. I mean everything. You Do you know? want to share how you how that happened or? Oh yeah, yeah, sure, I don't mind. Uh, I w it was stupidity on my part. The deal was that um, I, I went into business with this guy because he was gonna do all the work and I was just gonna be the, the investor. And he was so successful, we bought uh, and developed uh, 15 buildings. This one, the one next door, the one I live in, that you've been to, the one next door, and another two on the other side of the causeway, and then some in, in uh, the north. Any, anyway, we developed 15 buildings. All the buildings in Florida that are called Enclave. He had a, a little thing in his head that all our buildings, this is Enclave on the bay, the one next door was... Uh, uh, Enclave on the bridge, uh, the other, the one up north was Enclave York House, and 
So if you come to Florida and run into a building that is uh, it's called the Enclave, it was one of ours. So, uh, you know, it got to the point to where we had 15 uh, good, you know, good locations, good, good buildings and things like that, that we, that we had developed. Until he came to me and, and said, Armando, there's this fantastic deal. It's a, it's a huge deal, but I, I think you can cover it. You have enough money for it. And, this and, that. and the problem is that it's not in Miami. It's, it's up north, uh, St. Petersburg. And he was so successful, you know, but am I going to say, no, 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 let's not. You know, he had, so far he had made me a ton of money in every building. Not money, but units. I had units in 15 buildings. So I said, yeah, how much do you need? You know what that thing was? You can go on your computer and put Enclave Sable Point. It's called Enclave Sable Point in St. Petersburg, Florida. 250 townhomes he made me buy. And guess the year. 2008. 2006. Okay. Just before. Right. So everything that I had made my whole life, having sold a company to Gillette, having sold another company made it public, you know, LA Gear, just I leave it to your imagination, you know, I, I had done pretty well. Plus I sold the factories in Hong Kong and whatever. I decided that the rest of my life I was going to do nothing, just go around on my boat and have properties here and this and that. Lost everything. Wow. And uh, four, five years ago, six years ago, when was the final bankruptcy? No, it was 12, and then 12, so nine years ago. I was penniless. We lost $49 million in that deal. Everything that, that my whole life just went down the drain. The only reason I was able to bounce back a little bit is because uh, the banks, I disagreed with Leroy, my partner, and I, I didn't want to screw the banks. Excuse my language. But I said, no, you know, we gotta, I don't want to do that. I, wanna, I want at least what we have, uh, we have to give it to them. And so we did. And the banks were so grateful to me. My partner died penniless. A guy that had developed 15 buildings with me alone, and on his own, he had already done quite a few buildings, died penniless. Okay. Me, I survived him, but and my, my banks were so grateful because of the way I behaved with them that they said that they made a deal with me. They said, uh, whatever we get on foreclosure, you know, from people that go bankrupt or whatever, that we have to repossess their properties, we'll give them to you for only what they owe, not what the properties are worth. So I was able to buy apartments in, uh, in Palm Beach, two bedrooms, two baths in Palm Beach for $75,000, you know. Little by little, and uh, I rebuilt a little bit. I'm comfortable now. I'm not what I used to be, but I'm comfortable. You know, I don't have to worry about uh, what's going to be or not having for this or having for that. If anybody reads my life story, they would think that you know I have hundreds of millions of dollars. But in truth, I'm just. But I'm comfortable.
So uh, that's my lack of genius. <laughs> <laughs> I do have two more questions for you. I don't know if they're going to be on air or not. But one of my questions is because you said this about your dad. He grew up like in a leisurely life. Like he grew up with, you know, wealth and just stability. Do you think he kind of knew how fleeting that is and how kind of just to be content in whatever you have at the moment? And that's why he never really sought like, you know, to kind of gain wealth or fame or anything like that. Well, uh, you know, he was a typical son of, of a wealthy do-nothing person because my grandfather, meaning his father, was, uh, like I said, he had two hospitals and a, I don't know what to call it in English, but a casa de cura. It would be like a, like a small hospital for, for where people go and live for a while to recuperate from diseases and things like that. Mm. So he was very, very well, well-to-do. He was very prominent in his city. He's not from Florence. My father was from a town called Ferrara, a very, and where he, he, he was very, very well-known. Uh, his father was very well-known, very close to the top of, the, of, of that town, in other words. So, uh, Partially because of that, he never had to work for anything when he was young. You know, his father, whatever he wanted, his father got it from him. Oh, you want a new car? Then buy a new car, you know. No, cars were not a big thing <clears throat> at that time, but uh, he never had to work for anything. My mm -hmm. father never had to work for anything because painting for him was not work. It was something that came natural to him, you know. It's not like, uh, you know, anything else that, that we've had to study and, uh, you know, how much weight you can put on something to erect this and erect that. No, he never had to, you know. All he had to do is take a, a brush and, uh, you know, and paint what he saw and that made a wonderful living for him. So he, he didn't want to work like his, like his father at building something. Also because in painting, what is it that you can build? Nothing. Just uh, get more money in the bank, but there isn't, it isn't something that you can, you cannot go from one portrait to paint two portraits in a day or paint four the next day or four. You have to paint them one by one. And that, that, that's what he lived by and uh, mother had to get used to that. Um, so, that, that's the only answer I can give you. Uh, a little bit of rebellion against that. In other words, three generations. He rebelled, he lived the way he lived as rebellion <laughs> his father, and I lived the way I lived because rebellion against <laughs> acting so different from... Right. That's like My last question um, is having, having three boys, uh, which all kind of, you know, they all kind of have, they, they're all creative in their own way. And we have a few that have these, this entrepreneurial spirit, you know, like, how do you encourage that? And just to live kind of like you said, like just with this taking advantage of every opportunity that you have and networking and just, you know, is that, can that be taught or is that a natural thing? 
No, I, I, very, very good question. I don't think it can be taught. Uh, I think, uh, I think it's innate. Uh, you're, you're either ambitious, or you're a good worker, or you're honest, or you're dishonest. It's, it's, it's innate. It's, it's in one's character. Um, and I don't mean that you're born with it, but it's formed into you uh, from what surrounds you from birth. You know, you, you, you try to do the things that you admire and, and not do the things that you see that are creating problems, you know, like uh, I, was, I was obviously very, uh, very sad and a bit humiliated and that every time I saw my mother having to say to my father, we're running out of money, Arrigo, you know, but, and, and that, I, I couldn't live with that self. So, you know, I, I couldn't live with, the, with the marrying somebody and making them miserable because I'm not making a living or, or, or I'm not ambitious or whatever. So, I think, you know, it's very rare that a son uh, follows the steps of the father. The ones that do are very successful also, you know. Trump. Best his father by many times. Father was nowhere near as wealthy, uh, you know. But but he obviously liked that, and he stayed. But that's a rarity. The majority of people, you've heard this a thousand times. The sons of rich people, you know, are playboys. Are you know they don't have the ambition. They they're going to inherit lots of money anyway, so they, they don't have to go look for it. I hope that answers your question. It's not innate it's it's something that grows in you from watching the people that you grow up with you know? right. it's a natural byproduct of your environment and your response to it yeah exactly you put it in a much 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 better way but it is a product of that it's a it's a product of of uh, doing trying to do the, what the examples around you do and, and try to choose the things that went well as opposed to the things that went bad, you know. And uh, every time that my father didn't want to do something, we all suffered. Every time he wanted to do something, we all benefited. So you, you use that for the rest of your life. It becomes natural on you. It isn't something that you, that you have to say, oh no, wait, my father would have done this, so I'm going to do this. No. I'm not saying that at all. It's not reasoned. Something that comes natural. So, you know, last thing I'll leave you with is give the best example you can to your kids. So, uh, you know, don't have to go against uh, against what you did, but follow what you did. That's We're trying. Thank <laughs> you are. You're, you're wonderful. But you, you're married to an educator also, and, uh, and uh, you come from good stock as well. So, you know, you guys, I don't have to worry about you. Well, Armando, I want to thank you for coming on the Story King podcast. It has been wonderful talking to you, and it's always a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your stories and your time. Thank you so much, guys. So that was our conversation with my uncle, Armando Guidini. Babe, what did you think of Armando? You've met him before, but what did you think of this interview? I always find it a pleasure to, to talk with Armando. He is a wealth of knowledge and experience. 
and you don't have people who can be so engaging with every story and joke that they tell. So it's always a pleasure to, to just sit down and talk with him. And I learned a lot about my own grandparents that I never knew before, you know, even the painting for Winston Churchill and just his relationships with the politicians. So that was a lot of fun, just learning about my own heritage. I shouldn't be surprised he's a good writer because he's always been a good storyteller, as you said, verbally, whenever we had dinner with him or whatever. Um, He's always just telling story after story and telling all sorts of funny anecdotes. So it's cool that he's he's been able to uh, write a lot of things down so i also found it interesting that he attributed his his style and his ability to communicate based off of knowing italian and how italians they know how to they speak and it's very clear and precise in the language that there there's no ambiguity with the vocabulary as to what they're saying. So, and he attributes that in like a direct correlation to how he speaks in English and how he's able to tell stories and even jokes because he's a very funny man. Yeah, I, d- I did not expect that either. I thought he was going to say something about, you know, his parents directly or whatever, not necessarily being Italian. So that was really cool. I don't have any links for Armando Goudini, but hopefully his uh, books will be turned into uh, movies and a series so there are some talks of that he's had a a meeting about it i'm not at liberty to say with who but hopefully that'll uh happen and we'll be able to to enjoy that somewhere down the line Mm -hmm. it will also be interesting if he ever gets around to writing a memoir or something or even about your grandfather yeah he said he wanted to do that that would be really cool because I, I always found my grandfather to be a super fascinating guy and i don't know if it was just because he was an artist and i was a little kid and i was just mesmerized going into his art studio but but even his own kids uh, thought he was a fascinating man too so i would definitely read that book and recommend it to people if he ever gets uh, around to writing it so don't forget to check out story king books You can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, and quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You can choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then.